Welcome to Matthew Felix, the radio episodes, Travelers on Travel. I'm Matthew Felix, author of the books With Open Arms, short stories of misadventures in Morocco, and the new Porcelain Travels. In February of 2018, what is now my Matthew Felix On Air video podcast began as an internet radio program in downtown San Francisco. The radio episodes, Travelers on Travel podcast, feature segments from that radio show, in which I talk travel with travel writers, journalists, photographers, and filmmakers. I hope you like the show. And don't forget to check out the current video podcast incarnation, Matthew Felix On Air, available here, as well as on Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening, and talk soon. Hey, check out my new book, Porcelain Travels, Humor, Horror, and Revelation, In, On, and Around, Toilets, Tubs, and Showers, an Amazon number one new release in four categories, including travel humor, and winner of Gold for Humor in the 2018 Solas Awards for travel writing. You can also check out Porcelain Travels' companion podcast of the same name, which comprises readings from eight stories, including two recorded before a live audience. Porcelain Travels the Book is available in paperback and ebook on Amazon and other online retailers. Kathy Miller is a contributor to the Redwood Record, the Eureka Times Standard, and the North Coast Journal. She was the sponsorship and publicity manager of the Mateel Community Center, which provides arts exposure and education to rural communities and produces four annual music festivals, including the iconic Reggae on the River, the oldest reggae music festival in the United States. Kathy has served on boards of several nonprofits, including the American Board of an Orphanage in Kenya. In addition to Kenya, Kathy has traveled to Ireland, France, Italy, Spain, Morocco, and Greece, as well as Mexico and the Caribbean. Kathy recently spent three weeks volunteering with Refugee Support Europe at a refugee camp in Greece, and she's here today to tell us all about it. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you, Matthew. I'm really happy to be here. I am excited to have you here because I read your article in, this was in the Redwood Record. No, no this, this is North in, Coast. This is in the North Coast, Coast Journal. Journal. The Redwood right. Record is now defunct, but okay. that's where I got most of my writing experience yep. in the late 90s, early 2000s. All right. Well, I read the article wherever it was, and I loved the article, and I loved uh, just you. just everything about uh, this organization that I read about and things. So we're going to, let's talk about that. But before we get into your specific experiences mm -hmm. at the camp, uh, let's start with where you yourself started your journey to Greece, which was actually, if I understand correctly, at an art exhibit in Eureka, which for those oh, who don't know, right. is a town in Northern California. Right. So what was that art exhibit? Well, uh, the art exhibit was um, curated by a friend of mine who has uh, traveled and volunteered at refugee camps a couple times in Greece. And um, she is also a Facebook friend. And so she had announced that she was going to be doing this art exhibit at Clark Museum. So I went up to see the art exhibit and to talk to Annie. And discovered that we both have this same um, desire to want to do more. I'm kind of a armchair, armchair uh, activist. I do a lot of signing petitions and writing letters and calling elected officials. But I just kind of wanted to get in and feel what it's like. And so Annie said, invited me to go to Greece with her in February. So I, you know, that's how we 
ended up going together um, and ended up staying three and a half weeks there. Yeah. But what was uh, the, because I think the art exhibit there was specifically related to the refugee situation. Right. The art exhibit was uh, uh, refugee children's art. Yeah. And it was really touching. There was, there was a picture of a woman with her head down on the table that struck me. There was a picture of a overcrowded boat with a child hanging over it, reaching for someone who had fallen in. Um, There were pictures of children holding hands. Um, I I think Annie gave them the, the instruction of, let's draw what looks like hope to you. Mm, okay. And um, so it was really interesting seeing, you know, the different images that came to them. Right. Were these yeah. uh, refugee kids here in the States or were these refugees in the camps? That these were, doing were this refugees art? in the camps. In the camps, who okay. Had mm-hmm. been from all over the uh, northern uh, Africa and Syria. And okay, yeah, and we'll get Middle to all East. the different groups yeah. that were in these camps because I was surprised by, by some of the um, the groups that are there. We'll get to that in a second. But let's right. talk really quickly about, because um, you decide to go, mm-hmm. and this was just last February, so right. about however many months ago that is, four or five, uh, five six months, uh-huh. and you decided to go. She worked, your friend Annie worked with, a refu- or with an organization called Refugee Support Europe. Right. So can you tell us just a little bit about uh, them, just to give our listeners an idea of that? Well, Refugee Support Europe is um, a fairly new um, non-governmental organization that provides uh, the basics, the survival basics to uh, refugees, mostly refugees from war and um, or conflicts in their country. And uh, they provide food, clothing, and shelter um, and I think it's more that they facilitate the shelters. Um, I think UNCHR provides the actual... The United Nations uh, Organization. Yeah, mm-hmm. so... But um, they're wonderful. Uh, they really want to make the refugee experience uh, more humane and, and just give people back a feeling of normalcy and... Um, their dignity. Well, that's, yeah, exactly. And that's the word that comes up all over the website for this organization is dignity, dignity, dignity. And I saw it on their t-shirts. I think Mm -hmm. it's their actual sort of official slogan. So, um, why the repeated emphasis on dignity is the implication that in other places where refugees are receiving aid, that they're not necessarily being treated with dignity. I mean, is that sort of, is there a gap here and they're trying to fill that in? I think the reality is that there are so many refugees in the world right now. In fact, there's 60 million refugees in the, in the world astonishing. right now. Yeah. I know. And um, the refugees coming from Syria, which are, um, you know, populated most of our camp that we ended up working in in northern Greece, Katsikas, um, you know, have immediately after, they go through Turkey and they take a boat from there, and the first place they're generally dropped off, I understand, is one of the Turkish islands or one of the Greek islands. Um, people that I talked to had come from Samos, the island of Samos. Uh, Samos is, you know, when you look at Samos, you know, you'll see a beautiful 
tourist town. A Greek isle. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, uh, you go up further in the mountains, and there is a large refugee camp there. And from what I understand, it's almost twice its capacity for uh-huh. now. So they go to this camp. They see, you know, a couple hundred thousand refugees. It's, it's ill-equipped. It's not... Um, you know, the, the, you get what you get for food. Um, you have a, now this is what I understand from one of my interviews. Sure. Uh, you have a, um, one of your a, interviews with the refugees, right? Yep. You have a tent, you're handed a tent and a blanket. Wow. And, um, so it's, you know, and then that's kind of a holding place until you are able to apply for asylum and talk to somebody about asylum. Right. And let's talk about that in a second. But but I think that you've just described this sort of perceived, or not perceived, but this lack of sort of dignified treatment. And it's not necessarily, right. you know, intentional. It's just a lack of resources, presumably on the part of right. the Greek government or whatever government might be trying to, to mm-hmm. service these. And so your organization, Refugee... Uh, wait, remind Europe. me, Refugee Support Europe is kind of stepping in to fill that gap where, right. they, where they can. Yes. But you just mentioned a second ago, uh, and as you did in your North Coast Journal article, that there are approximately 60 million refugees worldwide, which is yes. just crazy. Uh, more than 60,000 of them in Greece, which is, again, where yes. you worked. Uh, but let's talk a little bit more just to contextualize this this crisis, particularly uh, in the EU and between Greece and Turkey, because... Uh, you said in your article, since the summer of 2015, more than 1 million refugees from the Middle East and North Africa have arrived on Europe's doorstep, most landing first on Greek and Italian soil. But then something happened in 2016 that kind of changed how that was all working. Right. So in 2016, in March of 2016, um, there was uh, the EU agreement between Turkey and the EU and they were trying to stem the flow of irregular refugees coming from um, North Syria Africa and the Syria. Middle East to, yeah. to Europe. And um, by irregular, I think they mean people without papers, or I'm not sure. The exact means. definition, but yeah. Yeah. And um, so they, you know, put that into effect. And... Um, I'm trying to... Was that effective in... Uh, because the idea was, Turkey said, I think, okay, we, if you if you give us money and resources, I believe, we will stop the tide and then the refugees will go straight from Turkey. Instead of being relocated from Turkey to Greece, Turkey was going to help, I think, distribute or get the right. refugees into Turkey Europe, right? Turkey was going to take some back and um, only... You know, they're trying to just take care of the Syrian refugees. And stemmy who, the tide, yeah. so to speak, into Europe, yeah. I think. So, um, yeah. that in, in Didn't what work out so well. What has happened is that, you know, the it, they tried that. And now, two years later, critics say the EU agreement has failed because um, it doesn't provide enough safeguards for refugee rights and it, there's not sufficient funding to shelter them. And while the, the asylum process just moves at a real snail's pace. Right. So as a result, you know, many people are, tra- are just trapped yep. in the uh, squalid, overcrowded, ill-equipped 
island. Right. Camps so what happens there. if I'm a if I'm a refugee? Let's say I am a Syrian refugee and I arrive at a Greek island. Mm-hmm. What happens? What's what's waiting for me when I arrive? What's the process? So, the high level process. Yeah. What's waiting for you is I think they just have you know they give you a, a blanket and a tent and they probably tell you when to be in line for your food or you know maybe where the facilities are um that's about it then uh they're i don't even think they apply for asylum when they get there they just um they're just waiting register Uh, yeah they register i'm sure but there's you know they finally the only way that people are able to get out of the um the island camps are before they have time to do it yep is um to either be ill or to be pregnant. And so the, what the couple, one of the couples I interviewed, I just want to clarify pregnant. something here really quickly. You, I think when you say getting out of the island camps, you don't mean getting out and getting asylum. You mean getting out to go to one of the mainland camps right. that's actually better, a better facility. Better, better equipped. Right. And that's where you not overpopulated necessarily. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you get off one of these island camps and you can go to the mainland camps if you're ill or pregnant. Right. Uh-huh. Right. So that brings us to the camp that um, that I was um, assigned to on the mainland. It was yep. Camp Katsikas in northeastern Greece uh, near the Albanian border. And um, it was cold. It was a little bit in the mountains. Because, again, you were there in February. Yeah, right? it was cold indoors and outdoors uh-huh. the entire time. Yeah. Um, and uh, the... Re- well, yeah. What was the refugee camp? Like, was it a reused facility okay. of some sort? So the refugee camp was an abandoned Greek military base. Mm-hmm. And it had a centuries, not centuries old, like most of what's in Greece, but uh, it had a very old uh, Quonset hut there that was about 100 feet long by about 40 feet wide. Okay. And that was our headquarters. And the camp itself was, I looked out and I really didn't know what to expect. I, because just um, a few months before that, it had only been army tents. And that's all I saw online. But it was just a sea of, um, of shipping containers, double shipping containers mm-hmm. that had two bedrooms and a bathroom on one side, all small. And on the other side, it was, you know, an open room with a counter and stove and refrigerator. So this was, these, these facilities were a lot nicer than you expected. You were really surprised because, again, you yes. thought these were going to be tents. Yeah. And instead you're finding sort of little makeshift houses that aren't necessarily ideal but I, you said just that they had an oven or a heating, cooling. Yeah, they had they had air conditioning and um, heating for the winter because in the camps in the islands, it gets really hot, really cold. Yes, it does. And people are just miserable. And they had running water even. They had running water. They right. had a toilet. I think it was just a squat toilet, but you know. And um, so it was really an eye-opener. And then I realized that the people... All the people who were in that camp had either a medical problem in their family or a pregnancy in the family. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the people. How many people were at the camp when you got there? Uh, There were 
about 380 while I was there. And, and was that at capacity or was that? No, um, that was just under capacity. Uh, just under capacity. Yeah, okay. so they, I think since then they're a little over 400 now. Okay, and most, you said, were Syrian asylum seekers or? Uh, the largest group of one uh, nationality was Syrian. Um, yeah, I think most of them were Syrian, Afghani. And um, Iraqi. Okay. And then you said in your article, because this this surprised me, huh. because I was, of course, just thinking, maybe not of course, but maybe just ignorantly, I was thinking, you know, because you hear, we in the news, we hear so much more about the Syrian crisis. So I was assuming it was mostly Syrian. Uh, yeah. It is the Mediterranean, so I know there's a lot of North African. But you said in your article, nine other nationalities, Iran, right. Iraq, Afghanistan, Kuwait, yep. Somalia, Ethiopia, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Eritrea and South Sudan. Right. So there were quite a few countries there, again, in my ignorance that I just wouldn't have necessarily thought of, you know, as having refugee crises that would end up yeah. end up there. So that was interesting for me to see that. Um, so we talked about how they ended up on the island centers, again, health issues or uh, pregnancy. Uh, and so when you arrived, uh, after you've kind of checked out the site and it's this military base, it's better than you expected, which is great. And you, you get inside and you get to check out one of these um, containers. But you also met your fellow volunteers. So who else is there volunteering when you were there? Just some examples. So of um, most of the volunteers are from the EU. Refugee Support Europe is based in London. Um, there actually were four of us Americans um, at that time, so they, they were happy to see us. There were eight of us all together for that camp of 380. Wow. And um, Is that enough? Eight people for fine. 300? Yeah, yeah it, was, it was amazing. Refugee Support Europe has it set up so perfectly, their systems and just how they're set up, that... It's really not hard to manage. It's okay. a lot of work. You're yep. working all day, yep. uh, which I wasn't, you know, surprised about. But um, yeah. Okay. So one thing that was really interesting to me. So you get there and you get your orientation, and I'm assuming that they uh, tell you about some, so give you some ground rules with regards to how you're supposed to interact, oh, okay. what you're supposed to do and not do. Yeah. And there's this this code of conduct, and it's got, I think, 10 bullet points. So I'm not going to ask you to go through all 10 bullet yeah. points, but there's there were a couple that were really interesting to me. And the first one, I think, <laughs> I think was the first one, avoid attachment. So I'm going to read yeah. this from the website. Avoid okay. attachment. We are here to be, this is quote, we are here to be friendly, but not their friends or surrogate parents. When you leave, that can be traumatic for them, them of course being the refugees, if they have grown to depend on you emotionally. No sitting in tents, no picking up children, no goodbyes. So isn't it hard? I, I read that and I just thought, I get it. It completely makes sense. I get it. But they're also saying that because that's really hard to do. How do you not, if you see this little kid who you know has just lost everything and he's, you know, he or she is playing with the ball and they're, they're smiling in spite of it all, and you're you're there with them for three and a half weeks. How do you, how do you avoid getting attached? Uh, do you avoid getting <laughs> attached? Exactly. Do you avoid getting attached? I think that's one of the rules that's really really hard to follow. Yeah. You do get attached, you know, um, but you just have to keep reminding the children, um, yeah, you know, just gently that. 
Well, let's see. I'll be leaving in another week. And, you know. So you just kind of bring it up and make yeah. sure it's in there. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not caught off guard. But I, and you know, and I was thinking of the children the whole time, you know, just, just, you know, because they do come up and hang on you and want to hold your hand and, you know, and you kind of let them know every once in a while. I wasn't prepared for myself getting attached. Yeah. And that was really hard. Yeah. It was, I was attached to a couple uh, young sisters there, and I just thought about them every single day. What was their story? Um, well, just they were from a Kurdish family. I think there were about six kids and the mom and dad. And, um, well, Dahlia was 12, and um, Jasmine was about eight I'd say okay and uh, they were just adorable they yeah. were just always around us they could speak a little English okay. so we were able to get to know them a little better than the other kids yep and um, they were just I can't explain they just, were just great people adorable just and then yeah. one other time I I remember I was sitting out on a s cement slab out in front of the uh, Quonset hut that kind of covers up pipes or something and I was just sitting out there it was the end of the day it was a beautiful day the sun was going down in the distance behind the Pindhouse mountain range and we were uh the kids were all running around having fun it was kind of cool and all of a sudden this little girl stopped right in front of me and looked right at me and put both of her hands on both my knees and I um I looked at her. She was one of the ones that liked to hang out a lot with you. And I, I put my hands on hers, and they were freezing cold. Oh, yeah. And so I just kept my hands there and kept my warm hands warming her cold hands. And we just sat there for about 10 minutes. We were watching the kids, and she'd look up at me and say something that I didn't understand. Couldn't understand, and yeah. I'd look at her and say, wow, you have the most beautiful eyes. And she'd giggle. And we neither of us knew what we were saying. But there was just a really sweet human-to-human -human connection. And um, then, you know, I was waiting for my friends. We had to leave. And it, then it was time to leave. And so I had to get up. And I let go of her hand and gave her a squeeze and got in the car and turned around and looked at her and there she was smiling and sweet and it was just you know I thought I know that we're not supposed to get attached but I don't feel like she uh you know she was heartbroken that it was I really more to, about you shared yeah, that moment it was just that yeah. moment yeah and you just kind of do your best to be realistic about it and let the kids know you're not going to be here forever. Yeah. And they've so. probably seen so many. I hadn't thought of this before, but um, as we're talking, it just occurred to me that, of course, they've seen people are coming and going every month. So by yeah. the time you get there, unless they've just arrived, they've probably already experienced this coming and going. Right. So in that sense, that probably helps out a little bit, I guess. Yeah, I guess. And they know that you're um, there to help them. And yep. so they're more open to you. Yep. But yeah, I understand what John and and uh, Paul, uh, our two co-founders, co uh -huh. are talking about. They, you know, you really got to watch it. You yeah. can't get too close to them because, you know, that's just going to be yeah. a, a pattern that repeats itself. Right. Somebody loves me, 
they're and leaving. Then they left. Somebody left. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk yeah. about abandonment so, issues. Yeah. Uh, so you said, you know, that these two uh, girls in particular could speak English, but most of them couldn't. Most no, of them most couldn't. of them couldn't. They so had it was just gestures. A few and le- they'd each have a few, few words, words or gestures like yep. us, you yep. know. Yeah. So you mostly just relied on a translator and then your own gestures and the context and you right. were able to communicate. And, you know, creative sign language. And, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of creativity, uh, one thing I loved about this article and about how the camp is run is um, is how they uh, provided the food, clothing and other necessities. And I think this is also related to their 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 notion of wanting to make sure that this is all dignified. Right. So what was unique about how they distributed the food and the clothing and the other necessities? Okay, so unlike other situations, I might imagine, it's not like somebody says, what size are you? Here's some shoes or here's some clothes. Um, the way we had it set up, in fact, in my mind, I called it the mall. Uh-huh. It was set up like a little mall and... There was a women's boutique, a men's boutique, and a children's boutique, and then a food store. Yep. Um, Each evening uh, before we left, we would hand out uh, envelopes with tickets in them to all of the places in in uh, the camp that we're going to be able to shop the next day. That's that way they weren't all. Crowding in at once, and it was just a lot easier to manage because there'd only be one person in each uh, store. And then they come into the store, and everything is set up in order, and they were able to get one jacket, one shirt, one sweater, one pair of socks, um, etc. Yep. And, um, you know, bras and underwear and that kind of thing. And um, each week they did that. Shoes were in high demand because people don't tend to um, donate shoes as much. And we could really use shoes. Um, So where are the donations? That's a quick, quick question. Are most of the donations, the clothing, the food, is most of that coming from local donations? Are they coming from overseas? Where is most of that coming from? The clothing clothing and shoes are coming mostly from Europe, but also from uh, the United States. The food, I think, is um, from... Our, you know, donations. We buy the food with donations. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because so much of it has to be, if it's produce and things, it has to be local. Right. I, you know, I, I'm not sure of the other um, ways they, they acquire food. Yeah. But you could look on the website. On the website. Sure. sure. Yeah. So, uh, so do you think, did you get a sense that, 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 that sort of the refugees appreciated? I mean, did you have any sense for... Yeah, because when they come in, you know, you're not bothering them. You're, you're just treating them like uh, a clerk. You're a clerk in the store. And they're the customer. They come in and they're like, you know, you help. You kind of help them here. Here's something that would fit, you know, this little boy. And right. you know, you just kind of direct them toward clothes that they're looking for us hold things up to and they like have a, they have a say in what they're choosing yeah, they and have a say they can pick out whatever they want yeah you're not going to instruct them on what they want and what they need or just hand they it to know them and say take needs. it yeah. yeah yeah and um one of the things we noticed was that well you know there are people here in uh flip-flops and sandals and 
And it's winter. It's winter. It's very cold outside. So kids weren't coming outside as much because their feet would get cold. So we went to the out, off-site warehouse, which was a couple miles away in the middle of a sheep uh, pasture. <laughs> pasture, yeah. And um, we went over there and saw that there were lots of donations of shoes. And so our job became that week, whenever we had time, we went over there and just um, organized all the donations of shoes by size and and sex and season. So the know? problem was, wasn't that you didn't have the shoes. The problem was they just hadn't been sorted through yet and organized yeah, and for distribution. Yeah, they had been just dribbling in a little at a time, and I don't think they realized that we finally had enough to be yeah. able to distribute. Yeah. So we were happy to learn a week after we left, they had a, a great big shoe give, giveaway, Excellent. which was wonderful. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's talk about your other responsibilities. So you worked in the store, you sorted through clothes, sorted through shoes. Mm -hmm. uh, what else did you do? Well, we worked in the warehouse and, you know, sorted all that stuff. Um, because I had an international driver's license from uh, some travel I'd done in Italy a few months before, um, they said, okay, you're the driver. You're the driver. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, I drove the van, and myself and another volunteer or two would go to a Costco-like store or two and um, get the groceries every morning, first thing. Okay, every morning. So we yep. would get boxes of oil and rice and all, you know. The staples. All the staples, plus fresh vegetables, canned meats, no fresh meats, and uh, pastas and things like that. And then we'd come back to the camp and unload that and then, you know, load it onto the, um, to the shelves. So... Uh, that was one of the things that I did every morning. Yep. And then in the afternoon, I helped with, you know, watching the kids and, you know, doing the uh, working in the arts and crafts room. So I they guess. had arts we, and crafts? They, they had, had that kind a of little uh, playroom, they called it. And so we had some, you know, toys in there that were donated, lots of pieces missing. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, we had some some art stuff that actually my my roommate Annie brought with her and um, so we we were there during Valentine's Day and we told them what that was about and they made Valentine's Lots cards of hearts. and we're very happy to bring those home to their parents and I sisters. bet I bet <laughs> I heard also that you learned the Macarena while you were there <laughs> more or less <laughs> yeah more or less I wish I wish we were on Facebook last week we were on Facebook live if we were on Facebook live I would have you demonstrate oh no you wouldn't <laughs> so okay all right so so you there's still it sounds like there's a little little improvement still in your Macarena I, you're not quite little, there maybe not quite there yet. okay yeah. but were they good teachers at least <laughs> oh they were wonderful teachers all right they all right so it's so more the student fun. who just needs to practice a little yeah. more it sounds like okay, well maybe by the time you go back Ex you will have perfected the Macarena Hopefully. uh one thing that was interesting to me a couple things actually um you, you know you talk about how uh, this camp, it sounds like, was isolated. I looked on the... Because the, the organization actually has... Refugee Support Europe actually has, I think, three other active camps mm -hmm. in Greece right now. They have, right. have had a couple others. They also tried to go into Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. uh, had some administrative problems there. But mm -hmm. but I was just curious, um, you know, 
does it make it harder on them or does it, I mean, maybe it doesn't, maybe actually for them that it's not such a concern because they're just happy to be off these islands. Um, but I, I was thinking also it must make it harder for the organization to provide for for the camps, if the camps are that much more isolated? Or oh. were you close enough to a town that it wasn't really that much of an issue? Oh, no. we're Yeah, we're close enough. We're eight miles away from the town of Yanina, where okay. we stayed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would mostly take the bus to Katsikas Oh, you could day. bus to the uh, camp? Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Um, well, right. we took the bus to the small town of Katsikas, and then... Got picked uh, up. Or... Yeah, a uh, volunteer would meet us there and drive us the last couple miles. So what about... Uh, so I'm presuming that because... They don't have documentation and things, or they, you know, they haven't been granted asylum. Uh, they can't leave the camps. Probably is that true? Or no, are they, they able? They were able to leave the camps during okay. the day. Oh, really? The okay. Greek government has, was really—I I can't say the Greek government in particular, but the Greek people themselves are very warm and welcoming, and it was. A including to the ex- refugees, yeah, you think? Yeah, it seemed like it yeah. to me. Um, yeah. And they had a, I think that it was the UNC, the uh, United Nations um, Committee on Refugees that would provide a bus that would come every morning that would drive them to doctor appointments or to the hospital or to the big um, bazaar, another big market for them to go shopping if oh, wow. they needed to or yeah. could, you know. Okay, great. Uh, yeah. Great, yeah. And I think I also saw that the Greek government or any government, presumably, that signed whatever the treaty would be that, that regulates this is actually obligated to to uh, school kids of a certain age. Because were some of the kids going to Greek well, schools? Well, um, you know, I really don't know about that. The yeah. kids that I know on that campus, on that uh, camp, camp, weren't. Yeah. They weren't being schooled. Uh, there was another German organization across the street that um, provided like, lots of activities, and you know, would, kids, people would go over there to for social and to use the, uh, the their computers and charge their phones and play games. And there was a lot of activity over there. They did have, I think, they had a. Um, a little preschool there. Okay. And maybe some informal things that some of the refugees... Somewhat educational, but... Uh, ...organized themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. The, you, maybe you could find more about that if people oh, yeah, want sure. to know um, yeah. through Refugee Support Europe's yeah, I th- website. I think, yeah, I think I read that on the website. But, uh-huh. but again, it seems like there are just so many sort of case-by-case situations here. So maybe I was just reading about one camp where they were able to do that. Maybe I misunderstood, but yeah. Um, So let's talk really quickly just about... I'd like to talk one more example of just kind of the people that you met because, Mm -hmm. again, so much of this experience for you was humanizing this and so much of what I think needs to happen for people to... You know, they're not just... um, I mean, I don't even know how to characterize them. They're not just these people necessarily that we, these, these sort of anonymous people that we see on the news that are sort of, you know, making these long, long walks and they're right. in rags. And I mean, these are, these are real people. So can you tell us about Omar and Savine? Oh, Omar you got, and uh, Savine. Yeah. They were an interesting couple. Um, Omar and Savine were in their, probably in their late, mid to late 20s. 
And they lived in the camp, and uh, Savine was five months pregnant. Omar was a mechanic from um, Aleppo. So five in Syria? Years, yeah, from, from Syria. Um, five years ago, their um, apartment was bombed. So they had to leave, um, you know, immediately with nothing. I think they had some savings. Um, and, but they had, you know, they, lo- they had the clothes on their back. Their apartment was gone and everything they owned. Yep. So they went to the next city where a lot of people from Aleppo went when this happened. And that was a friend. Mm-hmm. And they tried to find work in a friend, just like everybody else from Aleppo. Right. And it was very, very hard. They could only find, you know, menial jobs that paid very little. And they ended up living there for about three or four years. Oh, wow. Okay. While they were there, they had a baby. And then they decided they had to move on and try to find better opportunities. So they went to Turkey. And in Turkey, uh, Omar found a job right away. And he started to work. And he worked the whole week. And at the end of the week, he wasn't given his paycheck. Mm. So they... And had no legal recourse. Yeah, and had no legal recourse, you know. Um, So then they decided to try to go to one of the refugee camps, the Greek refugee camps. So they used some of their savings and hired some um, a smuggler to take them in one of those big open boats um, over to Samos Island, where there was the very overcrowded refugee camp. The one you mentioned at the beginning, right? And they found thousands of refugees living there in terrible conditions with un, you know, unsanitary, inadequate food, water, and toilets. They lived in a small tent with their son, um, and then you know they were just frantic. They were like, "Oh my God, we we're can't pregnant. live like this," yeah. you know. Well. You know, finding out, as they did, that one of the two things, ways you can surely get out is if you have a, a bad medical problem or you're the pregnant. Pregnancy. Well, mm-hmm. Sivine became pregnant again. Oh, she wasn't pregnant yet until yeah, that happened in the camp. Yeah, she became pregnant yeah, okay. there. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so they were able to transfer to mainland Greece, and that's how they ended up in Katsikas. Yeah. And uh, now... You know, at the time of the interview, it was like two months later, and they were just very hopeful. They really wanted to, you know, learn the language and um, take any classes they could. They were willing to do any work they had to do. And basically, once you get to the Greek mainlands, you're able to um, uh, apply for asylum and register, and then you're just kind of in waiting mode. You're Mm -hmm. waiting until, you know, they can get to your case. And that might take months. It might take years. Right. And um, so they just don't know how long. Yep. Um, Yep. As far as I know, she's had her baby now. I haven't... I I was on Facebook with her, Uh and I think she... um, you know, we both kind of uh, d- 
depend on you know babble or translate oh or yeah something. yeah uh-huh. so it's not always real understandable. so precise <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but um yeah they're i think they're Seem doing, to be doing good. well yep and then i also found out which was wonderful that um dahlia and uh jasmine and their wonderful sweet family are in the netherlands now oh, they wow. all got their passports wow and I think they've been they've been given asylum in the Netherlands. Wow, how nice to have that follow up and know Wonderful. that some, yeah. some good is happening and, and the people that you right. didn't get attached to, but not nonetheless, at all. not at all, <laughs> but nonetheless uh, might have cared a little bit about actually were able to get out and, and hopefully starting new lives. Yeah, so yeah, really. you'll have to go, to go meet up with them in the Netherlands. Yeah. Uh, I just want to read really quickly before we change subjects here and we're, we're getting near the end of our time, but I, I want to read one quote along this in the spirit of what we just um, talked about with, you know, these are, these are real people. Um, they're not just, you know, news stories. Quote, in their lives before the bombings, these people may have been poor, middle class, or well-off. They lived as teachers, mechanics, nurses, students, business people. Those identities also were part of their loss. And I think, again, it just, it's so easy just to see these as news stories, you know, and just to see these people, their pictures, right. they're so far from us. And, you know, when you go and you, and you done something such as what you've done face to face i mean we're all in this together right right right. um you know one thing i wanted to ask about as we do sort of near the close here is you know most of the experiences you wrote about in your article were positive insofar as your interactions but you are working among a lot of really traumatized people um and you were also all women volunteers at this this particular time. It sounds like that was just kind of chance. But mm-hmm. did you ever experience or witness any volatile situations? And is there any sort of, I mean, because they all have got to have just this mm-hmm. intense PTSD amongst yeah. you know, who knows what other sort of, of, you know, trauma. Did you ever, was that ever an issue working in the camps? Or was it kind of you know, not so much? We're told to, you know, be careful in the camps. I mean, you know, I'm sure there are some people who are traumatized and who knows what people may do you know um so we would go to the bathrooms we which was a porta potty you know with somebody else but nothing really ever happened i remember one day there was some kind of loud complaining about what clothing was available and it wasn't in the sizes that were needed and but most of the time, it was very polite. Yeah. They were very polite to us and us to them. Yeah. And it was, there was just an appreciation that went between the volunteers and the people there. It wasn't volatile, I think, yeah. probably because they knew that we were just volunteers sure. and we were there, you know. And, and because of, uh, RSE's, um, uh, their whole philosophy, philosophy of, of, you know, respecting people's dignity. Yeah. And I don't, I think that everyone understood that, yeah. And yeah. including them, you know. That's good to hear. And yeah, and what I was referring to would be less sort of deliberate or less out of a lack of gratitude or appreciation and more just... I am so stressed because of all yeah. I've been through. You know, more from that that sort of well, angle. One day, yeah, there is one day um, we had, it was it was a play day, and uh, a m- couple men brought their, their three of their children. 
And um, the kids were probably two, three, and four. And they all looked, uh, other, other than the other kids, they looked a little traumatized to me. They yeah. were serious and they were very hesitant and Mistrustful, they wouldn't look maybe. me straight in the eye. And yeah. I took a picture of them and, um, you know, I asked them if I could take a picture of them with their valentines and i noticed that two of them used the valentine to cover their faces mm. and then mm-hmm. the other one just was looking up with those big brown eyes and i thought these children have seen things that they should never have seen right. just heartbreaking and so you know that there are kids that right but most kids just act like normal kids yeah. they're just they're so resilient you All know right. That is a happy note to end on because we are out of time, but I want to make sure um, we give the website for the organization. So that is refugeesupport.eu because, again, it's, well, it's in the European Union now, not not after Brexit, but for the moment it's in, in the EU. So refugeesupport.eu uh, if Brexit happens. Um, and so the ways you can help, you can volunteer as Kathy did, and you, of course, can donate. You can donate, I'm guessing, in kind, but you can also send money, which, of course, is the easiest thing. Uh, the organization does rely on private donations for everything. So refugeesupport.eu, and you can read in full Kathy's article about her experiences in the camp on northcoastjournal.com. Kathy, Kathy, <laughs> Kathy, thank you for your work in Greece. Thanks for sharing the article and thanks for coming in today. Thank um, you. It's it was, my pleasure. It was great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Thank you.